Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. And uh, we are taking a break today from our new series in the book of Mark. We'll pick that up again next week, but we're delighted today to have a... a uh, a, a drash, a, a special message, a, a important message uh, uh, by our Chazan uh, Rusty Atchison. So, Lord, just bless Rusty now and uh, fill him with your spirit and, and uh, prepare our hearts to receive in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom. I started putting this drash together about a year ago. So it's ironic I was scribbling down notes this morning on make sure I hit points I wanted to hit. But like most things I talk about, Diane and I started talking about this quite a while ago, about a year, when I realized how a lot of people fall into mental traps, believe lies, or get thrown into different things like conspiracy theories and, and how we accept the things we accept. And it usually goes something like this. I see something that doesn't make sense from what I think I know. I have a choice. One, there's something I don't understand. Or two, they lied to me. And we all take the, they lied to me, role sometimes. I watched a lot of kids, uh, I didn't keep Christmas growing up, I watched a lot of kids who did, and when they realized somewhere around second, third, fourth grade that Santa Claus was not real, it was this horror on their faces, and it, it breathed this mistrust. All these things had been a conspiracy their entire life. But the cookies were there, and then they were half-eaten, and, the, and, ah. and it's this huge letdown. But when we hit this critical point, either there's something I don't understand, and it's usually that, or I've been lied to. And following that rabbit trail down, uh, Dan and I taking walks and, and talking about this back and forth, and, and what I'm going to present is essentially a, a very 30,000 foot view of those conversations. We're going to open with the words of the Master in Matthew chapter 7. Yeshua said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell. And its collapse was great. Your actions are key. And how we interpret the words of the master, how we interpret scripture is very key because how we understand it directly feeds into the things we do and act on. It's not just an intellectual understanding. It's a thing that we do. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Steady to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that phrase, rightly dividing, comes from how the priests would divide up a sacrifice in the temple. That's a specific phrase that's being used there. And that also directly implies there is a wrong way to divide the word of truth. 
And, and the rabbis discussed this, that you might have all of Torah perfectly memorized and you might be a very morally obtuse person. And we've all met someone like that, very knowledgeable in scripture and very ungodly. Now, a note on 2 Timothy 2, none of us can study everything. You can't be completely knowledgeable in every detail. There might be some geniuses out there who can, fluent in Greek, Hebrew, Latin, everything else, all the different variations, Aramaic. No one knows Aramaic. But you can't study everything. So there's a point where we need a community, and ignorance is not bliss. And there's some hindrances to good doctrine here when we rightly divide the word of truth. One of them is a lack of study. That some of us just kind of shrug and say, hmm, it's whatever. And that's a very, very bad attitude to take. Another one is pride. That we don't want to be proven wrong. So you just take the confirmation bias, only look for things that back up what you believe. And whenever something else comes up that contradicts, we plug our ears and go, la, 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 la. Yeah. Don't do that. And a follow-up to pride is bad community. Because we can draw out pride in other people. If I know that I'm going to be berated and mocked if I'm wrong about something, then it's really important I never admit to being wrong. That's critical. Because I'm going to get beat up. That's not what we do here. But there are communities where that is the attitude. And that draws up pride in someone else. And they plant their feet. I've never seen someone harassed into righteousness by other people. Don't try to do God's job. You will not do it as well. And then the next one is not using the right materials. Now, that that house that's built on the rock, what you build it out of is key. It's building materials or the building blocks. And growing up, one of the first toys, building toys my kids played with was the blocks with the letters on them. Now, I have a son and two daughters. My older two played with these toys very differently. My daughter liked to build kind of a, a small structure and play house with it. My son liked to build enormous towers and knock them down. And that would be hilarious to watch. And he liked to knock those towers down whether he built them or not. So we had to have some teaching moments there. You can't build serious structures with these blocks with the letters. You're not going to do it. If I showed you a picture of the Taj Mahal... And said, I want you to reconstruct your, your best approximation of this with these blocks with the letters. It would look hilariously inadequate. You're not going to do it. And the next toy, construction type toy that we get when we're kids is the jumbo blocks. Or as I call them, the big Legos. Because I forget the phrase, word jumbo blocks. And these are fun. You can do a little more detail with these. But they're not structurally sound. Especially when you get towers a little taller. You can't, you can't do nearly as much with them. And a big reason that we get these early on is because these are really hard to eat. <laughs> these are a little more difficult to eat. So they're less of a choking hazard. And from there we get Lincoln Logs. And these are great. You can do all kinds of things with Lincoln Logs. You're limited just on the kind of size of it and how they go together. But you can do some really detailed work. My son was about three when he was doing things on, on that level you're seeing there. And that outright impressed me because I couldn't have done that when I was three years old. And you can, you can get really detailed with Lincoln Logs. You can get these much larger structures. And then the gold standard of these building materials 
for kids, and some of us keep playing with them when we're much bigger kids, are Legos. They're the gold standard. You can build anything out of Legos. You could build a house out of Legos, and I wouldn't move like a, a grand piano into it or anything, but you could build a house, and you can Google image search different things people have built out of Legos, and it is crazy, the things you can construct with this. The building materials we use are critical for what we're doing. If we have this idea of what doctrine is supposed to be, and we're building with these blocks with letters, we are constantly going to have this vision for what should be. And we're stuck building with these blocks with letters, or maybe the, the big Legos, what else, the jungle, jumbo blocks, and it's not going to look right. So like my son would do when he was a year, two years old, knock it down and start over. And it's not going to look right time and time again. Not just because you're not a good builder at the moment, but because you're not even using the right stuff. I was about 12 or 13 when there's a debate my dad was having with someone, and it was over a minor issue. I think it was something relating to the calendar. But the person who was arguing with him retorted to him, well, brother, sola scriptura. I go off of scripture and scripture alone. And it left my dad kind of, oh, okay. Because the implication there is, well, so you're saying I don't. And he looked at him and said, we're, we're both talking about the same verse. We're just seeing it differently. And the guy's issue was that to back up my dad's position, he'd brought in Maimonides, Rambam. And he took issue with that. And my dad said, okay, do you have any historical evidence anywhere that backs up your interpretation? And the guy said, well, no. <laughs> okay. So you don't have any evidence besides you want the verse to mean this. Sola Scriptura has a couple of fallacies to it when we stay stuck on it. It assumes you got interpretation of Scripture right in the first place. It assumes you got something right at all. And then it assumes there's no other language barrier, there's no idioms, there's no cultural issues at all for you to take into account as you're wrestling with whatever it is you're trying to understand. Rav Shul writes in Romans 3, What advantage hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. And a pitfall we see a lot of Christianity fall into in the last couple thousand years is they toss all Jewish understanding aside and try to build these structures independently. And often it ends up with being with these little letter blocks. And it doesn't work, and it leads to a lot of problems. It leads to twisting the gospel. It leads to anti-Semitism. How you can take a Jewish book and use it to justify the extermination of Jews should be shocking and appalling. Paul writes in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He continues later in Romans 9, talking about the Jewish people who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Tossing aside thousands upon thousands of years, of Jewish understanding is what leads to a lot of issues. Now, that does not mean we simply accept whatever some rabbi says, because 
as we all, we've all heard some variation of the joke, if you have two rabbis in a room, you have at least three opinions. And you'll hear the numbers get, get more and more, and that's because rabbis like to sit around and talk. So just because you read something in Talmud doesn't mean that's the main understanding to begin with, and it also doesn't mean it's right, because Talmud is not God's word. When we toss aside all Jewish custom and decide, I'm going to build this all on my own, all kinds of crazy things happen when we detach the Bible from community, from God's people. When we start retranslating it to do things like excuse away divorce or retranslate it to excuse away Yeshua's deity, both of which have happened. And we use it to divorce the Bible from its Jewish context. So we're going to talk about a couple of places where there's a common misunderstanding and how a lot of the common understanding is building with those little letter blocks. Matthew five seventeen through 18. Most people who are Messianic are very familiar with this. I am not diving into the weeds too terribly much. Matthew five seventeen and 18. Do not presume, Yeshua speaking here, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter, jot or tittle, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Mm. A common commentary on this, the expositor's Greek, gives this explanation. Therefore, in fulfilling, he necessarily abrogates in effect. Well, repudiating the spirit of a destroyer, he brings in a law of the spirit which cancels the law of the letter. So he, so he's doing exactly what he said he wasn't going to do, but he's doing it with a smile. That's essentially what they're, they're getting at. And this is a very blocks with letters understanding. Because if Yeshua, if we're going to take him literally in Matthew 5 here, He's not doing away with the Torah. So if we talk ourselves back to that spot, he's saying, no, it's not what I came to do. And a couple chapters before, when he's being baptized, they said, it's coming to us to fulfill all righteousness. So I surely hope fulfill does not mean destroy. That would change a lot. We get ourselves to these spots because we believe a lie. And one of the lies that we tend to believe is that God's word, his Torah, is a bad thing. If you believe anything negative about God's law, his statutes, his commandments, I suggest you read Psalm 119 and unbelieve the lie you have convinced yourself of. Let's take a closer look at this. To abolish the law of the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He didn't say, I did not come to abolish, but to abolish. He said, not to abolish, but to fulfill. This is rabbinic language. Fulfilling the Torah and destroying the Torah were phrases that the rabbis would use when they're discussing halakha with each other. If one felt the interpretation of a commandment nullified the Torah, as in made it of no effect, they would say, you're destroying the Torah. And just the same, if the interpretation brought out fullness to God's word and intent, they would say, you're fulfilling the Torah. I'll give you an example. Let's use something around Shabbat halakha. If I was going to tell you that in order for me to really rest on Shabbat, my mind has to be at ease. So in order to do that, I need to stay on my work email the entire time 
so I know it's not piling up. And you know what? Before I come to shul, I need to swing by the office real quick and get a little bit of work in there so I can actually rest while I'm at shul in between checking email sessions. I have a feeling Rabbi David would say, rest of you're destroying the Torah here. <laughs> on the other hand, if I say, we are going to take a bit on a Rev Shabbat Friday afternoon before sundown, and we're going to make sure the house is clean, dinner is prepped, and anything we might need on Shabbat, we're going to make sure that's ready to go, because Friday is the preparation day, then you are fulfilling the Torah. Some other ways we see this is the mitzvah of love your neighbor being used as an excuse for the LGTBQ. Because it's important to love your neighbor and support the downtrodden. Using love your neighbor to support someone's bad behavior is wickedness. And this destroys the mitzvah. After Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Yeshua goes on and he draws analogies between a light commandment and a heavy commandment. You've heard it was say, don't murder. Well, I'm telling you, if you hate someone, you're murdering. Those two are weighted differently traditionally, and he draws a direct line between them. You've heard not to commit adultery. Well, don't lust. And that is an uncomfortable comparison, because when we do things we consider little sins, we usually comfort ourselves by saying, it's not that bad. And he thoroughly destroys that mindset in the Sermon on the Mount. Continuing in Matthew 5, he says, For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Where have we heard the phrase heaven and earth used in relation to Torah? Think back to Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 30. God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have placed before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Our witnesses to keep Torah are heaven and earth themselves. As long as those two witnesses exist, the Torah has to be in effect. And we don't get a Lego structure until we combine all of this understanding, until we both use scripture to interpret scripture and also take into account the phrasing and the culture of the day. Until we do all of these things together, it can be confusing. What does he mean, fulfilling and destroying the Torah? What is he talking about here? Why is he saying until heaven and earth pass away? Is that just in the superlative? Well, no, it's not in the superlative. Because we know heaven and earth will one day pass away and we'll get a new heaven and a new earth. But we're not there yet. Another common place, and this is a little less of an extreme, because the Matthew 5 spot is people use that to essentially make Yeshua out to be the Antichrist and nullify the Torah, which is absolutely false. We'll, we'll lower the stakes a little bit. We'll go to Matthew 16, verse 19, when Yeshua is talking to his disciples, specifically to Peter, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And this is often tied or taken with the same understanding as a verse in Matthew 12 during a parable. Yeshua says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first ties up the strong man, as in binds the strong man, 
and then he will plunder his house. Binding and loosing. This is commonly interpreted as spiritual warfare language of binding the demonic or, gosh, I hope you're not loosing it, so don't do that. That's the common interpretation here, and a lot of commentaries will back it up. And you'll see kind of a mix here. Yeshua's promise that what we bind on earth or loose on earth is also going to be done in heaven is not related to the Matthew 12 parable about binding a strong man. Binding and loosing were common rabbinic terms regarding things which were forbidden or permitted. Yeshua was giving Peter the authority to make rulings and specified that he had the authority and that that authority be backed up by God. Now let's be clear here. There is power in Yeshua's name. Absolutely. There is complete power in his name. All we're discussing here is exactly what he was talking about in Matthew 16. I am not rebuking anyone's prayer language. In case anyone suddenly got a little bit self-conscious. All we're discussing is the correct interpretation of Matthew 16, verse 19. An example of this authority being used, the binding and the loosing, as in when you have different halakha, when you have different uh, ways you carry out the commandments, at some point you need a community where people agree on what XYZ is. So we're told to rest on Shabbat. Great. And the rabbis have a whole list of things that are forbidden on Shabbat. And depending on the community you're in is the halakha or how you walk that out. So, for example, in some ultra-Orthodox communities, you pre-tear your toilet paper and you never use a light switch. We are not Orthodox. <laughs> an example of this being, being used is uh, in Acts 15, when we see the apostles coming together and they're trying to figure out what to do with new Gentile believers. And the question is, before they can receive salvation, do they need to be circumcised? And that is not a quick process. Circumcision is a common word. What they really mean is complete conversion to Judaism, which takes years. So the question was, do we need to put all these Gentiles through a multi-year process before they can be saved? And they hashed it out. And the answer was, no. That was never the point. That was never the purpose. We're not going to do that. They come to salvation. And after that, in order to be in community, there's a couple of things that they need to avoid. And they will learn the rest later. Those things they would avoid were simply uh, things offered to idols, sexual immorality, things strangled, and blood. And failure to comply with that was, and still is, sin. This was binding on Gentile believers. It was already part of Torah. And it is of note, if you believe the food laws were of little importance, that three of those four relate to food. Let's change gears a little bit. Show of hands. Who's heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Ooh. <laughs> All of the Dunnings have. Yes. All right. 
The textbook definition, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people with low ability at a task overestimate their ability. It is related to the cognitive bias of illusory superiority that comes from people's inability to recognize their lack of ability. In other words, you're so dumb you don't realize how dumb you are. That's right, you don't know what you don't know. I'll give you an example of this that I that I experienced. Starting out in college... So I loved history classes in, in high school, and like any good college student, I, I changed my major like eight times. And I decided to shoot for a history degree, which has served me quite well. And that sounds like I'm being facetious. I'm actually not. It just took a little while for it to actually be useful. In my last semester, I was surrounded by a lot of people at, at UT Dallas who we've been in history classes together for years at this point. And someone made the comment, you know, I don't really feel like I know that much about history. And we were talking about it because we'd all realized how little we actually knew. The more we learned, the more we realized we didn't know. Going into it, we were all quite confident that, oh, I'm a history major. Ooh, okay. And we all felt quite smart. And by the end of that degree, we didn't feel very smart anymore because we knew how little we knew. I'll give you another example. If you take someone and they get interested in photography, taking pictures, and they start watching all these YouTube videos on photography, and they get themselves a nice camera, and they get the different lenses and start learning about aperture and other camera words. Have them do that for three months, and then ask them, how much do you know about photography? And they're going to say, so much. I know a lot about it. And they will dramatically overestimate how much they think they know. And then take someone who's been doing it for years. Are you an expert photographer? They're almost always going to say no. And they will pull experts in a field. And then they will pull novices in that same field. And the novices will dramatically overstate how much they know. Where the experts will dramatically understate it. Because the experts know how much they don't know. And we see this happen time and time again. And we all do it. The Dunning-Kruger effect happens to all of us somewhere. Where we are so ignorant on a topic, we don't even realize how ignorant we are. We all do this. And that's where that good community and not having pride is really helpful. Because then we can fix the ignorance. And this often gets twisted into a defense mechanism. Because when someone learns about a breadth of knowledge they don't have, and that gets related to a, hey, this could be really useful in how you extrapolate doctrine and and how you interpret scripture, a really easy way to not have to worry about that is to just disvalue it and discredit it and disregard it and say, ah, it's not relevant. We don't need that. So let's talk about a verse that's commonly used by anti-Semites. It's one of the issues is on parables in Mark chapter 12. Now, this really belongs in a different sermon, for being honest, on replacement theology and anti-Semitism. I'm including it here to prove the point I've been making, but this really belongs, it deserves a, a whole sermon on its own, so we're just going to touch on a couple points. 
And he, Yeshua, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and leased it to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive his share of the produce and of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he, the owner, sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head. And treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And that one they killed. And so with many others. Beating some and killing others. He had one more man to send. A beloved son. He sent him to them last of all. Saying they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another. This is the heir. Come. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and put the vine growers to death and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? A stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet... They feared the people, for they understood that he told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. There is a lot to unpack here. What are the symbols of this parable, and how are they commonly interpreted? So the common interpretation of these themes, the vineyard is God's kingdom, the owner is God, the owner's son is Yeshua. The owner's servants are prophets, the wicked workers are Jews, and the new workers are Christians. And there's a lot of problems here, and that is very much a blocks with letters on them interpretation. As we approach it with our own understanding of where we are right now, and I understand how someone might construct that once you detach this parable from the rest of scripture and the Jewish context in which he was telling it. Let's start with, what's the vineyard? So the common interpretation is it's God's kingdom. Yeshua is referencing strongly here in the wording of this parable, Isaiah chapter 5. So before you would really dive in and do a study on his parable here, you need to read the first bit from Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to jump to verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 5. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And this changes the picture a little bit. So the vineyard is more accurately Israel. In his parable here. And later Yeshua says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. So the owner's servants are the prophets. That is that is correct. And the prophets, by the way, were Jews. So corrected here, the vineyard is, is Israel, and the owner is God, and the owner's son is Yeshua. No one's debating the owner and the owner's son. And the owner's servants are prophets, as Yeshua makes this quite clear, and no one really debates that. But then we're left with the wicked workers and the new workers. 
And this is where we kind of hit a, a confusing point. If the wicked workers are Jews, that's odd. But he just called Judah his, his pleasant plant, his delight in Isaiah 5, 7. So it would be kind of odd to, to twist it. And there's a lot of other scripture this would contradict. The places where it talks about the gospel goes to the Jews first. And to them we're given the oracles of God. All these different places would suddenly be very problematic if the Jewish people were being completely replaced, supplanted, and kicked out. And there's a lot of prophecy that would make sense either. In Zechariah 8, the Lord of Armies says this, In those days, ten people from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. If the Jewish people were being supplanted and replaced, there's a lot of prophecy in the Tanakh that was an outright lie. So we need to make sure we don't start interpreting parables which twist God's words and make him a liar. So then we're left with who exactly was Yeshua talking to? Because it mentions they knew this was against them and they were angry. So who's he talking to? Let's back up in Mark chapter 11. And it, and they came, excuse me, and they come again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. There come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Most of these would have been the, the temple authorities, most of which were Sadducees. Yeshua didn't have a lot of interactions with. Most of his interactions were with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were essentially deists. They didn't believe in a lot of the prophecy. They didn't believe in, in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They they were not exactly doctrinally aligned uh, at all, at all with Yeshua in any way, shape, or form. And that's why the second he starts talking to them, they wanted to seize him. So again, the people he was upsetting, because everyone around him was Jewish, the people he was upsetting with this parable were the religious authorities, the religious leaders in the temple. Now to get us to a Lego structure here so we can have a better understanding of this, we're going to look at the words of Shimon Bar Yochai. He was a second century rabbi who was commonly quoted in the Talmud. And his, his midrash on, uh, from Mishlei Proverbs 19.21, he says, Why was Israel likened to a vineyard? In the case of a vineyard, in the beginning, one must hoe it, then weed it, then erect supports when he sees the clusters forming. So also Israel, each and every shepherd who oversees them, must tend them as he would tend a vineyard. He draws a direct correlation here, Shimon Bar Yochai, to the shepherds over Israel being those who tend a vineyard. And that is who Yeshua is talking about. The shepherds over Israel, the ones who were supposed to be teaching Israel, maintaining them spiritually, and they were failing because each time God had sent one of his servants, one of his slaves to correct They ultimately killed them. And the people Yeshua is talking to here, the people the son of the owner is talking to here, are the same ones who would soon have a midnight kangaroo court and kill them, and kill him. He was speaking to the wicked workers, and they knew it. And now we have our Lego structure. 
and this is a common interpretation of themes in a lot of Messianic Jewish understanding. The vineyard is Israel. The owner is God. The owner's son is Yeshua. The owner's servants are the prophets. The wicked workers are the current religious authorities. And the new workers would be new religious authorities. And who would those new religious authorities be? Maybe someone like Peter and the other disciples. People who he had said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. That kind of language tends to indicate authority that would go with things like binding and loosing and halakhic rulings. If Judaism was going to be newly irrelevant and just kind of an icing on that argument, nobody got the message. Nobody got that message. We see in Acts 21-26, Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. He is in Acts 21, where quite a ways past Yeshua's resurrection and ascension here. And he is still participating in temple ceremonies. The most common understanding here is that he was finishing a Nazarite vow. The last of those offerings is a sin sacrifice. Why was Paul in the temple if it was a, if it was irrelevant? The temple, by the way, is a shadow of heaven. That is why the temple is relevant. It's a shadow of what is going on in heaven. And later in Acts 23, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead I am called into question. If being a Pharisee were opposed to following Yeshua, Paul never got that message. He's still self-identified as a Pharisee, not as a Pharisee first. And he made it very clear he would throw everything away to know Yeshua. You will never be so Jewish or so anything that it is worth more than knowing the master. That can never happen. And also of note, this whole trial, which he was on trial in Acts 23, he was arrested in the temple. And if you follow the story in Acts, he was being carted around from spot to spot, being accused of teaching against God's Torah. And it's quite clear those were false accusations being made. And what is a common interpretation of Paul's letters today? That he was teaching against Torah. We cannot divorce God's word from his people. You can't do it. We'll close with a verse from Hosea. Prophet writes, God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That destroys us. We all have to diligently pray that God brings wisdom to us. Because wisdom ultimately comes from God. He does not call us to be foolish. He calls us to be diligent in what we do. Wisdom comes from him, and we have to trust him to guide us. You need to work as if everything depended on you, and you need to pray as if everything depends on him. And I assure you the latter is the most true. But if God sees you being foolish with your time, he's not going to work in you. 
When we rely on our own understanding and we refuse to study, we build the little letter block understandings. And that is what leads to disaster. And that is what destroys us. Those little letter block understandings is where we get things in our history like the Spanish Inquisition, like the Holocaust. Because people start twisting scripture and saying those wicked workers are the Jewish people. Yeshua was not kidding, as we all know now, when he said people will try to kill you thinking they're serving me. And it's happened time and time again. God's people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Would the worship team please come up? Would you please pray with me? Avinu Shavat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are mighty. You reign supreme over our country. You see all of history beginning to end throughout the entire universe. You see it all at once, Lord. Your mind is so far above us. Your wisdom so greater than ours. There can be no comparison. Lord, as we interact in our communities, as we raise our families and our children, as we seek to be better husbands and wives, better sons and daughters, better brothers and sisters, I ask that you would speak your wisdom and your knowledge to us, that you would guide us in your wisdom and truth, that you would lead us in good understanding. Lord, I ask that you speak your wisdom over us to be the people that you call us to be. That you would make us your priests. You would make us who you created us to be, whether it's teachers, whether it's evangelists, whether it's healers. I ask that you would call us in your wisdom and in your truth. Lord, I ask you to have mercy where we fail in this. You would guide us. You're a good father and you are compassionate. Please lead us in your mercy and please lead us to have compassion on others as we strive together. We would know you more and we would walk with you all the days of our lives. Amen.